Last two Sundays, I've had the privilege of uh, preaching on favorite topics. This morning, I get to speak on a topic that is equally important, but not necessarily one that I approach with the same gusto. However, it is an important topic. It can be a life-changing topic, and embedded deeply within it is some of God's greatest good news. And to all of us, to each of us, there is a compelling call that we need to hear and respond to today. We're not going to read it yet, but our focal passage that you may want to turn to in your Bibles, I encourage you to do so, is Luke chapter 16, 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We'll not read that yet, but... That would be the scripture that you want to have before you this morning. About 60 years ago, a very popular Broadway play was made into a movie starring Rex Harrison. And uh, the name of the movie was The Four Poster. And it was about the trials and the triumphs of a marriage. And the title was based on a wedding gift. That was to serve as the central backdrop to virtually the entire story. And the four poster is really the story of the husband in the marriage. Who we seem to discover is a very charming fellow. Quite likable. We also discover quite quickly that he is very self-absorbed and self-promoting. And so everybody in his life basically serve as either props or problems, helps or hindrances, en route to him getting his way. And so he loves his wife. But at times, because he loves himself more, he hurts her deeply. He loves his children. But again, they also feel the sting of his self-absorption and his self-promotion. Try as he may to run his own life, he cannot avoid that which is uncontrolled by him. And tragedy comes into his life, uh, first in the form of the untimely death of his son, and then the long illness and eventual death of his wife. And in the midst of all that, he feels the emptiness and the impact of it all. He simply can't control all the outcomes of his life. And that he must deal with the heartache of unresolved hurts that go to the grave. And so the movie moves toward its conclusion. And he lays dying on that same four poster bed. And as he draws his last breath, his spirit rises up and looks down at that lifeless form that he had occupied all these years. And he is aware of another presence in the room. And he encounters the angel of death. And the angel of death is beckoning him to leave the room. And so he follows because he has to. Out into a long corridor that is enshrouded in fog. And through the swirling mess at the end of the corridor, he sees an elevator. And as he is directed toward that elevator, he knows that that's going to carry him to his ultimate destination in eternity. 
He notes that there are two buttons to the elevator, one with an arrow pointing up and one with an arrow pointing down. And as he gets closer and closer, the elevator bell rings and to his chagrin, the down button is the one that lights up. The door opens. He drops his head, sags his shoulders, and he is about to get on. When suddenly the angel puts his hand on his arm. And with a sly wink, he pushes the up button. The door closes. It opens again. And they get on together to ride up to heaven together. As the credits roll, we have the message reinforced. That no matter how self-absorbed one's life, no matter how manipulative, no matter how our egos tend to edge God out, no matter how we become the Lord and master of our own lives and we, we bow down and worship the God's substitutes of our own choosing, that somehow God will give us a wink. And he will go up with us into heaven. Because after all, would a loving God send anybody to hell? This is a question that many of us ignore. Some of us struggle with and some of us struggle with a great deal. And well, we should. After all, who wants to consider the prospect that anyone would go into eternity without God? Certainly not God himself. In the 18th chapter of Ezekiel that Judy read from this morning, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read these words. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness in terms of the end of history and the return of Jesus. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, these scriptures from the Old and the New Testaments uh, give us the message that that God is bent toward our salvation, not toward our destruction. But the latter part of both of those verses is very important. Repent. There is a heaven, there is a hell, we are accountable, and we all are called to repentance. You might think for a moment, well, hey, wait a minute. Isn't that Bible 101, you know, the God of wrath of the Old Testament? And now we live with Bible 201, you know, the God that we know in Jesus, who is gentle and mild and loving. And yet some of the greatest passages on the love of God are found in the Old Testament. And when we come to the New Testament and we consider the teachings of Jesus, Jesus, the gentle, mild, loving Jesus, taught about heaven and he also taught about hell. And so this morning, we're going to consider for a few moments the teachings of Jesus on this subject. As we do consider that tough question, would a God of love send anybody to hell? But before we do, as we look at a parable that he told, as Jesus often taught in parables, here's the bottom line. 
from the perspective of the gospel. In the strictest sense, God does not send anyone to hell. We choose it. And as a matter of fact, God so loves us. He is so bent toward our salvation that he sends his one and only son to a cross to endure hell that we may not have to. But he gives us the gift of a free will. And should we choose to bypass the cross, choose not to submit our lives to God's love in Christ, he will honor that choice. But it carries with it accountability. And yet God's love is so resolute that it will pursue us to the very gates of hell, loving us every step of the way. Now, let's consider Jesus parable about hell. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, as we consider what Jesus teaches about hell, we're going to focus on simply two realities this morning. And the first one is this. You and I are creatures made to live forever. And hell is the, the trajectory of a life carried right on out into eternity. When you consider you and me, humankind, what does the Bible say about us? 
Well, the question of us comes up, first of all, in the latter part of the first chapter of Genesis. And what we learn there is that we are created in the image of God. Now, to be created in the image of God means that that we have innate value and self-worth, that God creates us inject and injects great worth in us that we are made in his image. It also says that we are made for relationship with him. And the lives that we are given are meant to be lived productively and creatively, just as God himself is productive and creative. And God gives us this magnificent gift called personal freedom. And with our freedom, we have the opportunity to make choices concerning our lives. And those choices form our character. And it is our character that we will take with us into eternity. Now, Jesus reinforced this in the last great sermon that he ever preached. It's found in the 25th chapter of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 25, he compares God to the owner of an estate. And humankind to being servants on the estate. And so God, the owner, gives to each of his servants certain gifts that are to be invested. We are to use our freedom responsibly to invest the gifts the owner has given us. But the owner does come back and the servants are held accountable for how they invested what they were given. And so in Jesus parable in that 25th chapter of Matthew, two of the guys are commended by the the owner, by God, and they are given greater roles and opportunities in heaven. One of the servants is condemned and he is cast into the outer darkness because of an unfaithful life. Now, in our culture, we get the first part of what the Bible says about us, that we have been given the gift of personal freedom. But we don't get the second part so often that we are responsible and accountable for the use of our freedoms. And this led the great Catholic communicator, Bishop Fulton Sheen, who was the first great TV evangelist, to say that in America, we have a Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. And we need a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. But that statue never got built. We love our autonomy and we love our stuff. I remember Pastor Scott saying that in various forms along the way. And we have our evil twin in the rich man in Luke chapter 16. He uses the gift of his personal freedom to shape and bow down to God's substitutes of his own choosing. In his case, his money. And his stuff. Now, in our culture, I'm convinced that excessive individualism is the kudzu of the American persona. How many of you know what kudzu is? If you've driven the highways of the American South, you are familiar with kudzu. 
Kudzu is, is native to, to Japan. It is a little vine. And back in the 1930s, when the U.S. government was concerned about soil erosion in the South, they touted kudzu as, as a wonderful ground cover that would solve the problem of soil erosion. So kudzu was imported to the American South. But like a lot of ideas that the government comes up with... <laughs> It wasn't necessarily thought through completely or researched thoroughly. In fact, a lot of my ideas are that way. <laughs> and what they discovered pretty quick is that kudzu thrives on hot, humid southern summers. And pretty soon, even as Japanese automobiles overran the American car market, Japanese kudzu overran the southern landscape. And what was touted as a, as a cure-all suddenly was declared to be a noxious weed. And for over 50 years, the Department of Agriculture has tried to figure out how to stamp out kudzu. And in spite of that, it now overwhelms 7 million acres in the South. Excessive individualism is the kudzu or the noxious weed of the American soul. My inalienable right is to make endless choices about how I'm going to run my life. Now, it's not that I don't, I don't worship God, but the God I worship is a designer God. Piece together of my own preferences. You know, a little answered prayer here, a little protection over there, a reasonably happy life, a, a competitive edge over my opponent's. And home in heaven when I die. But the truth be told, he is the God of the margins because I am the God of my real life. And I bow down and worship God's substitutes of my own choosing. And somehow I have the idea that I will not be accountable for any of this. And yet Jesus says we are. And we see that in the rich man. By the way, did you notice? We don't know his name. He is just called the rich man. In other words, his God substitute is his identity. And he passes this guy named Lazarus every day with no concern for him. He is just a problem, an irritating interruption in his life, and he largely ignores him. And then he dies. And in hell, he lifts up his eyes with a new perspective. Now, in hell, does his attitude toward Lazarus change? He sees Lazarus off in paradise. And not really, because he immediately wants Abraham to tell Lazarus to become his water boy. And to be the messenger boy to warn his five brothers. His attitude hasn't changed because hell is our character extended on in to eternity. You see, in essence, freedom without responsibility, without considering the call of God upon our lives, is a life in which we tell God to get out. Well, we'd like him to hang around in the shadows to protect our backs. But in essence, we say, leave us alone so we can run our own lives. 
And hell is the ultimate granting of the wish for God to leave me alone. C.S. Lewis once very astutely said there are two kinds of people. There are those people who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those people who live for themselves and reject the overtures of a loving creator. And finally, the creator says, thy will be done. Hell is the trajectory of a life extending on into eternity where I choose to reject God's offer of love through Jesus Christ. Now, lastly, the other thing I want us to highlight this morning as we consider this important topic and the call of God upon our lives is that Jesus parable here about hell teaches us that God is a God of justice. Do you want him to be a God of justice? What is promised here is that there is coming a day when justice will trump injustice. Wrongs will be put right. And all creation will be restored to the loving, great purposes of God. Now, there are deep within us what I like to call echoes of eternity. Things within us that call out to us of the reality of our creator. And one of those echoes of eternity is the desire in all of us that justice will be done. If you want to test this out, go to any playground around here and watch children at play for just a few minutes. And what will you hear before very long? That's not fair. Somebody's sense of justice has been violated and they feel the unfairness of it deeply. And that sense of of the, the longing for justice stays with us all the days of our lives. We don't always act justly, but we always desire that justice be done. Hence the, the great problem of, of suffering and evil in the world. We, we cry out for the resolution of all the wrongs and for justice to be done in this world. There is coming a day when a just God, he is holy, he is loving, and because of both he is just, will trump injustice. He will put right those things that are wrong and we will dwell forever in a restored heaven and earth where his loving purposes are done. But that does require judgment. In our parable, we have this stark contrast of of a sense of injustice and the inequities of life. The rich man has an abundance of riches. He wears fine clothing. He's got a huge wardrobe. He dines sumptuously every day. He hoards and invests his wealth and and he passes right by Lazarus and doesn't give a thought about his value as a human being or the quality of his life. And meanwhile, what about Lazarus? He is grindingly poor. Wild dogs are his constant dangerous companions. And it never gets any better. 
at least in this life. Now, I do want you to notice something here. We know about the rich man who has no other name. He's identified it by his riches. His riches define him. Notice that Lazarus is not called the poor man. His poverty and his injustices do not define him. So when you dwell in the midst of injustice, don't let that define you. His identity is in God. And consequently, when he dies, the angels carry him into paradise. And the rich man dies and he's buried. And then in hell, he lifts up his his eyes, being in torment. What is the torment of hell for the rich man, by the way? It talks about the fires of hell. Now, we get the idea of, of hell and fire in terms of the word Gehenna which was a garbage dump outside Jerusalem where all kinds of refuse and the carcasses of dead animals were were thrown and and noxious fires just burned day and night. In the Old Testament, Gehenna was called the Valley of Hinnom, and that is the place of the darkest moment in the history of Israel when their kings made their children pass through the fire, which literally means they sacrificed their own children and in the worship of false deities in the valley of Hinnom. And we can still sacrifice our children at the altar of our God's substitutes. It's just that ours are much more sophisticated. The other words for hell that are used in the Bible, and one is used here in this passage, the word Hades or, or Tartarus, refers to utter outer darkness. In other words, these graphic metaphors that Jesus uses for hell in the Bible all refer to the horror of what hell really is. And that is utter separation from the presence of God. Disintegration like fire. Alienation like darkness. That is the agony of hell. But we discover that God is a God of justice. Rights will be put, wrongs will be put right. And we will dwell forever in restored heaven and earth under the loving purposes of the Creator. Now, in that, there's some good news. But it does require a heaven and a hell. There must be judgment if there is to be justice. Now, where's the good news in that? Well, here's the good news. Many of us have learned it from childhood up. It is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but has eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For we are coming to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich toward God. And so a God of justice becomes a God of mercy because he sends his sinless son 
to endure hell on the cross that his justice may be may be portrayed even as he offers us his mercy. And suddenly we understand that the most important commitment we will make in life relates to whether we bow the knee and we confess Jesus as both the Savior and the Lord of our lives. So John three goes on to say, whoever believes in him, Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed on the name of God's one and only son. So the great invitation is a generous invitation in which God invites us. Come unto me, all you who are labor, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Back in the fall of 1990, Marilyn and I were, were in Boston, Massachusetts, our only trip to the East Coast. And we stayed in the Sheraton Hotel in Framingham, Massachusetts, out in the suburbs. And, and we were told while we were there of something that happened at the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Boston that very year, the summer of 1990. Yesterday, some of you were here yesterday, this place looked quite different, didn't it? We had a wedding and a beautiful wedding reception here. And in the summer of, of 1990, a couple prepared for their wedding. And they decided they were going to have a celebration to end all celebrations. And they, they went to the event coordinator at the uh, Sheraton Hotel in downtown Boston. And they booked a banquet hall and uh, uh, the ballroom in that hotel. And their plan that night after their wedding was that all of their guests would gather and they would have this magnificent banquet prepared by the chefs at the Sheraton Boston. And then they would dance till late into the evening to a big name band. Well, the event coordinator helped them get all the arrangements made. Of course, there was a hefty price tag with that. And much of the money had to be put down up front so that contracts could be let and uh, people hired and et cetera. Time passed. The bride was getting more and more excited. Got within a week of the wedding celebration and she gets a phone call. It's her fiance on the other line. And he says rather grimly. And he doesn't call her honey. He calls her by her name. We need to talk. Well, the conversation went something like this. I'm having serious, serious doubts. In fact, I can't go through with the wedding. And the whole thing was called off. But you can imagine how devastated the bride-to-be was. All these plans had been made, all her dreams and schemes. And, and after the initial wave of grief, she got to thinking, Oh, he put down thousands of dollars with a Sheraton Hotel in downtown Boston. What am I going to do? She immediately calls the event coordinator. They, they have an appointment and they sit down and across the desk she pours out her story with tears in her eyes. And the event coordinator is very sympathetic. In fact, she says, I want you to know, years ago that happened to me. I do know how you feel. You will get over it. That's the good news. But here's the bad news. We've already signed contracts. We've hired people. The band is set up. Money has been spent. We cannot return that to you. All we can return is a very small amount of your down payment. So now what to do? And here's the decision the jilted bride made. In her recent past, she had volunteered 
in homeless shelters in the city of Boston. And she'd really developed a heart for the poor. And one of the things that she noticed is that the poor so seldom have opportunities to celebrate. So she pitched the idea to the event coordinator. What if we we go ahead and have the celebration? But with my contacts, I can invite a few people and we will just invite the homeless to a celebration, a night to remember at the downtown Sheraton Hotel. And the event coordinator loved the idea. She had some contacts. She talked to her bosses and people got excited and it became a a big project where some money was was uh, was uh, put in the pot and and some discounts were given and some people worked for free. And and on that summer night. At the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Boston, stretch limos pulled up, and people in rented evening clothes who had never had those evening clothes stepped out, and they sat to a banquet like most of them had never experienced or had not in years. The only change to the menu was that that night they had boneless chicken in honor of the groom. And after the meal, these people who seldom got to celebrate danced the night away to a big name band. And in the New Testament, Jesus talks about a great invitation to a banquet. And some of the people you would expect to be seated there in fellowship with Jesus in that marriage feast in heaven don't show up. They don't have time for Jesus. They are pursuing being lords of their own lives, being pretty good folks, counting on the fact that a loving God would not send them to hell. And Jesus, in his great love, issues a compelling invitation to the broken, to the poor. To the likes of you and me who are poverty stricken in our self directed lives, separated from a rich and loving God. And he calls us to the banquet and invites us to fellowship with him. That is an invitation. I urge you to accept. Now, why do we have this teaching of Jesus about hell other than, first of all, it is reality? Secondly, it says to all of us, I think in a way that the Russia team probably feels most acutely tonight that there are people in the traffic patterns of our daily lives who are living for themselves, who are bowing down to God's substitutes, and whose destination in eternity is eternal separation from God in hell. And it just may well be that one reason we rub elbows with them every day is that we are to incarnate. That is to flesh out in our daily actions and attitudes and witness as the Father gives opportunity of the love of God that is known in Jesus Christ. Who in your marketplace needs to know the Savior? And could you ask the Father to begin to give you eyes to see and a heart that feels as he feels toward those in your marketplace? 
And could you begin to ask God to give you a few names to write down and to pray for and live intentionally toward every day? You are there on assignment, and so am I. And you are here this morning, and I would ask you, have you accepted the invitation? That God so loved you, he died for you. And if you will confess your need for Christ, get over the idea, I'm a pretty good guy. And just look into the face of a holy and loving God and say what we know to be true when we're honest. I am a sinner. I do tend to be addicted to self-centeredness and to be the God of my own life. I tend to love me more than God. And to bow the knees of my heart, to repent of that and to embrace the Savior. As the leader of my life. And Jesus says, if you will do that. You have the gift of everlasting life. This moment could be a defining moment for every one of us here. First of all, how we view our world, especially the world around us. And secondly, how we view the father. So I'm going to ask that we prepare for a time of response For most of us, that might be to close our eyes for a moment so that we are not distracted and we focus upon the presence and the voice of God as he speaks to us in worship and the word today. If I am a Christ follower, can I give thanks to God for that right now? Can I say thanks be to God for his incredible gift in my life? And Lord, forgive me for taking it for granted. And then can you pray, Lord, who do you want to put on my heart that I rub elbows with every day? That I may represent you to them. That I may be intentional about seeking to love them, share my witness with them to bring them to Christ. And this morning, have you accepted the invitation to repent of your sin? And to invite Jesus to become the leader, the savior of your life.